the Farmer to Farmer podcast episode 150. Holy cow, that feels like a kind of milestone. Anyway, this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, John Good, farms with his wife, Amy, at the Good Farm in Germansville, Pennsylvania. Ten acres of vegetables serve 200 CSA members, plus a farmer's market and some wholesale sales. 2017 was their first year farming on this land under this name, after 11 years of renting ground at the Rodale Institute, where they, where they operated their private farm business, Wyatt Creek Farms. John and Amy took a very strategic and long-term approach to getting their own land. John shares how they developed their farm business on their rented land at Rodale, including how they prioritized their investments and how they built the markets and off-farm equity that helped them make the transition to their own land. We talk about how they developed their new infrastructure on blank ground, how they financed their land purchase, and how they found a piece of property that met their needs. And before they started Quiet Creek Farm, John and Amy worked at Food Bank Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. Food Bank Farm ran an incredibly efficient, intense vegetable operation for a long time, and John shares how he and Amy have adapted the systems they learned there for crew management and operational efficiency, but without the same intensity. And John shares how he has carried that farm's maniacal focus on weed control forward into his own farming operations without a bunch of fancy tools. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. John Good, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I'd like to start off today by having you tell us about the good farm, where you guys are located, how much you're doing, and where you're taking your produce to market. Sure. The, the good farm is uh, in Germansville, Pennsylvania. That's in the southeastern part of the state. Uh, we're a certified organic vegetable farm. We grow 10 acres of organic vegetables for primarily a CSA community of 200 members. Uh, we do a little bit of wholesale and one farmer's market in addition to that, but we've um, are now and kind of always been primarily CSA farmers. Um, and this is our first year working at the Good Farm. My wife, Amy, and I previously ran Quiet Creek Farm, um, which we operated on leased land at the Rodale Institute for the previous 11 years. We bought this property that we're at now um, about four years ago, and we've been building infrastructure here. And uh, this season was our first year actually farming on our own land and operating under the new name of the Good Farm. So when you say you were leasing farmland at the Rodale Institute, you weren't part of the Rodale Institute then. You guys were running your own business there. Correct. We ran our own business at Rodale. Um, I always called it kind of like a mutually beneficial uh, relationship. You know, we we got the chance to, to farm on land that wasn't our own. It was great certified organic soil, obviously, being at Rodale. And um, we kind of provided Rodale with um, a working model of a CSA farm on their property to demonstrate to visitors and um, you know other people in the area it was sort of we were kind of a nice nice way for them to demonstrate how a smaller farm could operate within their larger farm and be successful and um, 
was a great situation for us. It was kind of like our stepping point between uh, managing a farm and we were able to own our own business and run it at Rodale. Um, even though we were on their land, we were independent from them and then eventually build the capital to buy our own property and sort of finally, um, you know, at 40 years of age, realize the dream of uh, buying our own land and farming at our own home. How long were you farming at Quiet Creek Farm at Rodale? We were at Rodale for 11 years. We had a one-year lease and then two successive five-year leases there. Great. So, I mean, you really had a long time to build your business in that location. We did. We did. Um, uh, we started there to, I think it was around 2006, I believe, or 2005. So we were, it was also, it was, we had a lot of time to start our business there. And it was also sort of that time period where um, CSA shares were really easy to sell. There weren't as many CSA farms in the area at that time. So it was really a good place for us to sort of be a proving ground for our business and our growing skills. We had managed another farm for four years prior to that in Chester County, Pennsylvania. So we definitely had the, you know, some of the growing chops by that point. But, um, you know, at Rodeo, we were really able to build our, our business up. I mean, we originally started there around 185 CSA members. And our last two or three years, they were up around 275. Was the land the only thing that you were using that belonged to Rodale? Did you have your own tractors and, and your own packing shed and things like that? Or were you cooperating with them with that stuff? We leased other spaces from Rodale. They had a small greenhouse on their property. When I say small, like 48 by 24. It wasn't tiny, but it was, it was small for their uses that we leased. Uh, we leased the barn space from them uh, that we used as our you know, packing shed. It had a small walking cooler and, a, and an area where we could uh, set up our, our wash pack station. We borrowed, we didn't, well, we didn't borrow much equipment. We bought, I bought a cultivating tractor as soon as we moved there because I knew uh, cultivating was going to be our, our primary sort of labor expenditure on the farm. So we put a lot of money into vegetable cultivation right away. In our first year, two, or maybe three, we hired Rodale to do a lot of our tillage because they had really big equipment. Um, they could do tillage really fast. Like they could do it faster uh, custom for me than I could doing it myself. It was more expensive for me to do my tillage than to hire Rodale to do that. And so we did that our first couple of years. And then as our business grew, we just, we eventually bought a tillage tractor, a spading machine. And, and slowly we sort of took over all the things that we used to hire them to do. But, um, you know, we, they sort of, again, like really helpful that we were able to do those things slowly, like invested all our money equipment wise into weed control right off the start. And then we sort of built backwards as much as from there, we sort of went backwards from the way everybody else goes and put our money into tillage and planting. But um, originally we put our money into uh, weeding and Rodale did all our tillage for us. They also, we would hire them, pay them by the hour to plant our cover crops for us. And a lot of that, that sort of bigger field work that they were really well equipped to do uh, more so than we were in the early years. I actually think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you, I think about the investments that we made in our farm when we were getting started. And in some ways, I think we would have been a lot better off had we invested in mechanical weed control equipment right from the start and, and spent less money and effort on some of the other elements of the operation. Cause that is just such a critical factor, especially in a beginning farm situation. Yeah, definitely. If you can control those weeds right from the start, you have a better chance. And, and again, tillage is an easy thing to hire. It doesn't really require a lot of, your time and effort. You know, I spend way more time out on the cultivating track than we do doing tillage. So we really wanted to, to focus on that in the early years. And we had learned that um, sort of from managing a farm before and uh, the farms we worked on when we were apprenticed. We really had been focused on weed control first and foremost. And then we sort of built all our other systems out from there. 
um, when we designed our farm. And, and that, for the most part, worked pretty well for us. You mentioned four years of managing production at another farm before you started your own farm, Quiet Creek at Rodale. But then you were also apprenticing and interning on farms before you had your other management experience, right? Yeah, we apprenticed for two years. Um, I went to school at UMass, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts. So that's sort of where we became exposed to farming. And we apprenticed for one year there at the Food Bank Farm in Hadley, Massachusetts. And the second year we apprenticed at Caretaker Farm in um, Williamstown, Massachusetts. And with both those farms, we were part of the craft program, uh, which in the, the Pioneer Valley area of Massachusetts, they called the Collaborative Regional Alliance for, for Farmer Training. It's a mouthful of an acronym, but that was what it was named. And we got so we also got exposure to a lot of other really good farms in that area. Brookfield Farm is in that was in that group. Um, John Paul Cortez Farm, Roxbury was in there. Um, Homestead Farm was in there at the time. Uh, uh, Hawthorne Valley. So some really great um, and also sort of really uh, pioneering farms in sort of CSA and just organic farming the rebirth of organic farming through the late 80s and early 90s were from that region. And we got to, to learn from those folks when we were getting started. And we've actually had uh, Don Zasada and Bridget Spann of Caretaker Farm have been on the show in the past. And of course, Dan Kaplan from Brookfield and John Paul Cortens have all been part of the show. So, um, you know, interesting closing of some loops there. But you mentioned mm-hmm. Food Bank Farm in Massachusetts. And I remember going... Oh, it must have been 1995 or 1996, sitting down with Richard DeWile at Harmony Valley Farm and watching videos from Food Bank Farm about how they efficiently ran their operation. And when I think about a, a big farm that really just knew how to crank out produce, well, can you tell us a little bit more about Food Bank Farm? Sure. I mean, the, what, what the farmers did at the Food Bank Farm was amazing. You know, we were we were growing 40 acres of vegetables, and that's 40 acres in production. Now, it wasn't a 40-acre farm. There were 40 acres of vegetable fields. So I always think that's a, you know, a key differentiation when people are talking about farms. So they actually had 40 acres in vegetable production, and, we, and we're managing that with two farmers and four apprentices. Primarily, that was the workforce. Um, so you can imagine now people, I think, with similar-sized farms have crews of like 15, 20 people, uh, the amount that they were kind of cranking out with a really bare bones crew and really bare bones equipment too. Um, it's just, they just didn't have that much infrastructure at that time. And also part of the arrangement there with the farmers at that time was they had a lease. Um, the food bank of Western Massachusetts actually owned the property on which the food bank farm operated. And the lease payment, the, the food bank farm business paid to the food bank was 50% of the, the produce they grew by weight was donated to the food bank of Western Mass. So, I mean, I think your audience obviously understands how hard it is to grow uh, produce profitably in any way, shape, or form. But then imagine giving half of it away by weight as your, as your lease for your land. So the food bank had developed really, really efficient systems. Um, and yeah, I, I remember those videos. They were VHS tapes. Yes, <laughs> I think that was circulated at that time, showing you the harvest techniques on the food bank. And, and I don't think people even really know anymore that so much of what they do has, has sort of come down through secondhand through the VHS, VHS tapes in the, you said, the mid to late 90s. Um, 
and he, and lots of things that you know that Linda Hildebrandt, the the one farmer there, I think we, you know lots of people based their crops based on the information that she she laid out on those those early years at the food bank farm, um, just sort of laying the groundwork like a foundation that so much has been built on um, since then. So for for the people that weren't plugging in those VHS tapes back in 1995 and 96, and and I've sometimes thought it would be really interesting to resurrect those and and get those back out in circulation again because. I mean, they were, there was, I don't know, there was just such an abundance of like a hundred different ways that you could make your farm five or 10% more efficient in, in every element of its operation. And they had really just figured out how to, you know, I mean, just, just how to really just nail every little thing that they were doing. And I would think it, it must've been a little intimidating to go from a farm like that and go start working on your own. Well, you know that the, the sort of what we learned from working at the food bank was these great systems, you know, and we we really liked their systems. Um, things were really efficient there. Um, when we had moved to caretaker after that it was a much smaller farm, and we were working the same amount of hours with the same size crew to get you know this well less work done really. And uh, we always thought that you know the small farm model hadn't really learned the efficiency that the food bank was forced to learn because of the size it was and the, the production sort of demands it had. But we also saw at the food bank farm that the pace was, it was really frenetic, you know, and that, that was part of what made it work was really just endless drive and really, really real big focus on speed. And, um, and we liked working fast, don't get me wrong, but we, we also knew that we didn't think we'd be able to kind of keep that up our whole careers. So when we moved to our own farm, we thought, you know, if we could take some of these, sort of the, the techniques and principles from the food bank, which was this really big, really efficient farm, and apply them to, you know, a much smaller scale. I never really wanted to do, say, more maybe than, than 10 to 15, 20 acres. And though I could apply some of those same techniques to a smaller scale, we could have sort of the same results, and but maybe not have to work quite so hard, you know, have some time in our life for for other interests and, and to do more than just farm. And so we weren't so much intimidated as I think uh, almost excited or, or um, you know, curious to see what we could do with what we learned at the food bank on a smaller scale and maybe free ourselves up to pursue some other interests or just maybe to farm at a more, a pace that would let us keep farming over the long term. You know, I often think of farming as it's like being a professional athlete and it's not so much in the sense of that we're, you know, required to have high performance, but in like in terms of wear and tear in your body, you know, and the advantage a professional athlete has is that they make tens of millions of dollars and get to retire when they're 35 or 40. And, uh, and farmers are just really starting to hopefully get halfway decent at what they're doing at 35 or 40. So, you know, your body's got to, got to hold up over the long term. And that's where we wanted to use these sort of really efficient production systems on hopefully a smaller scale. And then, um, maybe not have so much wear and tear both on our bodies and psychologically because uh, farming is, you know, a very psychologically taxing job too. So, um, we really were appreciative of the experience we had at the food bank. And we still talk about it. And I talk about it with my apprentices. They probably get sick of hearing the term, the food bank farm or the way we did it on the food bank farm. But, you know, here it is, you know, almost 20 years later. And I still think of all the things I learned there. at the time, I think most of them, I didn't even realize the importance of, of what I was learning. Um, but we've kind of carried it with us, you know, ever since. And it's, 
um, it's always been sort of uh, a benefit we just sort of had in our back pocket um, by working there our first year ever farming. Well, and I mean, right there, that's something too, to have that be the first experience that you had farming rather than coming on to that three or four years in. So when you talk about bringing some of what you learned at Food Bank Farm to your operation at Quiet Creek and, and I assume now at the Good Farm, what sorts of things did you bring? What are some concrete examples of, of systems that you brought over and scaled down? The, the biggest systems we learned at the Food Bank, let's say there's two, but the, the first big thing was just a really, you know, um, almost maniacal focus on weed control. You know, we, we spent, you know, we were either harvesting or, or controlling weeds, and that was either mechanically or by hand. We did a lot of hand work there, too. We sort of learned that the premise of keeping, you know, your, your farm as free of weeds as you can over the long term, trying to deplete the weed seed bank sort of right from the start. And it was just sort of drilled into us, you know, that it's just an element of almost your face at, at some point that you just know that weeds need to be controlled. And uh, so bringing that with us right, up, right off the bat on, on any land we worked, you know, it was sort of our immediate focus was weeds, weeds. Um, and and if you can keep weeds under control or at least stay ahead of them a little bit, you have a chance to do everything else that matters on your farm. You know, that, so that was a, a big thing. And the, the mechanical systems themselves maybe aren't the most crucial thing in the world, but just to know that you needed a mechanical system. Um, I didn't necessarily use all the same tools and, and equipment that the food bank used, but I used the same principles in terms of controlling weeds early, controlling them often, um, scale bed, scale feed bed preparation, those sort of treatments to really keep things under control. The other thing that we took a lot from the food bank was, um, I think, in harvest efficiency. Was in we did everything at the food bank as a crew. Everybody on the crew did every job together, and um, there was there's something about that kind of cohesiveness of a team unit, and everybody knows how to do everything, was really valuable. And and again, we still farm that way, and it's it's not even almost a conscious decision. It's just because that's how we started, and we just kind of felt like that's how you do it because we learned it there. And um, so the food bank, we did all harvesting as a crew. Um, washing was mostly done as a crew, and washing was really fast. You know, there was sense there or a sort of a, a pressure there, there because we were doing so much with so few people, was things were really quick and dirty. You know, um, maybe not really dirty, but really quick. <laughs> and we sort of always learned that kind of, again, just pushing the pace as, as fast as you can do something. Um, an expression I use with my employees when they're taking too long to, to you know, maybe wash something is, you know, don't make love to it. Just wash it. <laughs> get it in the water. Get get it back out and keep going. And we, yeah, again, you had to do that on that scale. Um, but after you know a season of doing that, that becomes the way you just kind of do things for the rest of your life. And um, so, you know, those are the two things, sort of the broad, I, broad topics I think that we got from the food bank was, you know, that the weed control piece and the working as a crew and um, and a lot of good harvest techniques. You know, the, the food bank did things very efficiently harvest wise with again really no equipment we we dug all our carrots with a fork at the food bank farm and we were you know digging i don't i don't remember the amounts but i'm sure it was you know 500 to 1000 pounds of carrots every picking and we would do that with a fork but it was just in terms of pacing and movement and um, a lot of it was just really in flow kind of things just making sure there was always somebody everybody knew what was next and was always getting set up for that and I think those two areas were really important for us. And um, 
And like I said, we still <laughs> tell our apprentices about it all the time. Um, it was such a valuable experience working there. You know, you mentioned something like even the harvesting the carrots with the forks, but they actually, they kind of turned the carrot harvest on their head. And this was a technique that I learned from them that we used on our farm was they would strip the tops from the carrots while the carrots were still in the ground so that you weren't sitting yeah, there we're, holding the carrot and snapping it. You were kind of pushing your hand along the row and just pulling all the greens off and throwing them in the wheel track. Yeah, we would top all the carrots first. And it's still, I, I actually don't do that as much anymore because I sometimes have bunching carrots for other markets and, and um, other uses. But at the food bank, all carrots went out topped and weighed. Yeah, and people still think that's crazy when you tell them that. But, you know, it was it's quicker to, like you said, just go down the row. We would we would crawl down the row on our hands and knees, do a sort of a push and pull mo- motion. The tops break off. Somebody else is coming right behind you with a fork, and somebody else is coming right behind them, and the carrots just go right from the ground into your, in, in the case of the food bank, was five-gallon buckets. That's what we would harvest into. And it, it's like you said, it sounds backwards, but it's, it's actually a quicker, more efficient way to, to move down the row. You talk about how you talk to your crew about Food Bank Farm until they're sick of it. But I do remember one of the things that Michael Doctor, one of the farmers there, told me when I got to meet him in, in 1997 was that uh, was just how important the whole crew attitude was and kind of creating a culture around working the way that you work and, and just how critical of a, of a part of the operation that was. Yeah. That's something um, that we definitely felt there because the food bank, when we worked there, you were worked really hard. I mean, it it was, you know, sort of referred to in the circle of apprentices up there as the boot camp of organic farms because of the pace we were required to work at. You were supposed to run from one job to the other, like not walk if you didn't have a vehicle. Um, So there was some really intense stuff like that, but we did have, this this crew mentality that you felt like you were members of a team and uh and and a lot of that was because michael and linda too were always working with you you didn't have sort of these absentee farm managers i mean they had other jobs to do as well and they would go do them but they they you knew when push come to shove they would always be there alongside you and and generally you know outworking us 20 year olds so even though you worked hard you felt respected and valued and that sort of led to this this culture, yeah, that we were we were the food bank farm, we were a team, and um, that always sort of just contributed to a good attitude among the crew. And you know, when the crew has a good attitude, things get done. And, and tough work can become something that's um, sort of fun, and and um, you can gain a sense of uh, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, but sort of tough tasks become easier when you work on it with a lot of people who are committed to it. And, um, you know, I think it's something you see more in farms now. A lot of people have sort of more divided tasks up and have separate managers for separate separate areas of the farm. And we've just never really moved that way. We've always appreciated working as a crew. And um, we still kind of instill that sort of culture on our farm. And I don't know if it's because of that or not, but we've always had, you know, I think good crews. And we generally have people who uh, are happy. And we have a lot of people come back to our crew as apprentices for second or third years over the years. I've had some people work for us like, like for 10 years. And um, I think part of that is because you don't feel that you're just working for a farmer. You feel like you're working together to accomplish the goal of the farm. And uh, we learned that at the food bank and uh, we still sort of apply that on our own our own farm here. When you started Quiet Creek Farm at Rodale, how did you make that arrangement happen? Like 
did you just did you go to Rodale and say, you know, we need 10 acres to start a vegetable farm? We were managing another farm at that point in Chester County, a Charlestown cooperative farm uh, for the Anderson family in, down there. And um, at that point, my wife and I wanted to move closer to our home, which was about an hour north of there, um, around Lehigh or Berks County, Pennsylvania. We, both our parents lived uh, two miles from each other, so we were always trying to get closer to our families. And um, we were thinking about sort of the next step of starting our own business. And I, I saw an ad, I believe it was in the PASA newsletter, which is the Pennsylvania Association of Sustainable Agriculture, their newsletter that they were looking for a farmer to start a CSA on the Rodale Institute. Um, they had had someone there previously who had moved on to another position and uh, they were looking for someone. So um, that was about 15 minutes from my wife, Amy and I, our hometown. So we called up Jeff Moyer, uh, who's now the director at Rodale, and uh, went in and talked to him about it. And, um, you know, we hit it off right away. Uh, Jeff, one of the greatest people I've ever met, a good friend of mine. We talked to him and we could tell sort of right away that we we clicked. You know, he liked us, we liked him. And at that point, we actually continued farming at the farm we were at for another year, where Rodale sort of laid some of the groundwork for us to come. They got some of the fields that we wanted ready, plowed and planted to cover crops. Um, they actually put the walk-in cooler that they had in their warehouse, sort of collecting dust at that time, but they put that into the barn that was going to be our CSA pickup site. They got the greenhouse cleaned out until it would be ready for us the next year. We were able to come down that October and plant garlic seed on the new land, so we'd have garlic right away the following year. And um, you know that was how we got in there, was sort of through an ad in, in the newsletter and then meeting with Jeff and then um, took a year of prep work. And then the following year, we bought a house um, about five miles from Rodale and started farming there. And we're there for a decade more. What a great way to start a farm and, and something that I feel like is really an unusual opportunity for somebody to have that full year of, of really preparation time and, and just, well, yeah, just getting things ready. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it was an unbelievable experience and a great opportunity. Um, and it's definitely hard to find out there, but um, we happened to luck upon it. It happened to be in our backyards. Um, you know, sometimes things just work out if you just kind of keep making the right, or hopefully making the right choices in life, you know, opportunities sort of arise. It's kind of how I sort of have lived my life and it's so far worked okay. But yeah, then we were just presented with this great opportunity to farm on great land at, you know, the Rodale Institute, this great name in organic agriculture. And um, those opportunities are definitely hard for young farmers. Although I think Sort of through that model at Rodale and some other, you see, you're sort sort of seeing more of these nonprofit kind of incubator farms pop up around the country. And I think there are more of those opportunities than there were, but um, we just happened to luck into a great one at that time. When you started farming at Quiet Creek Farm at Rodale, did you jump right in with 10 acres of production, or did you guys do what I think is maybe a more common model and start with a couple and and gradually scale up? Um, we started with, it wasn't quite 10, but I think we started with seven or eight there our first year. Um, and I know Jeff was nervous about that because he was wanted to make sure we'd be able to handle that much land. But, you know, we assured him that's what we had been doing in Chester County. Um, we knew how to do it. And we, you know, we were starting our own business and we had a mortgage to pay now and we needed to, to produce. And um, we knew the land there was good land and was going to be able to to produce for us. And, you know, we felt confident in our own skills. So we had an experience at our 
our previous farm at Charlestown, where we started out with two or three acres, progressed to about eight acres while we were there. So we sort of had our growing period at that farm. And when we moved to Rodeo, we're like, okay, we're going to start right off. Um, I think we did about 150 shares that first year in a farmer's market. I think we did two markets, actually. We weren't worried about production at that point. You know, We knew that we could pretty much do that. Our main concerns were operating our own business from scratch now. And um, we knew what we needed to do in terms of getting the crop in the ground and out of the ground. Now we were just looking to, to really make enough money to, to make a living and, like I said, pay a mortgage and, and support ourselves full time. It does seem like a pretty bold move when you're starting your own business to buy a house that same year. Yeah. I mean, we've done a couple of those that have been a little bit scary, um, but you you have to, you know, you, I I would say that I am very methodical. Like I'm not a risk taker by nature, by any means. So, you know, I wouldn't make that jump unless I felt really secure that I could do it. And, um, and, you know, our house was also, you know, kind of run down. I'm a carpenter on the side. So I was, I was working on that too. You know, I sort of thought, well, if this falls through, I'm going to have a renovated house to sell at the same time. You know, I, I sort of, there was a, there was a plan behind what we were doing in both ways, but you know, at some point, I guess you just have to take the leap one way or another somewhere along the, the, the road. And that was just the time for us. You know, that was when we decided to make that leap and, and see if we could do it. And, um, you know, if we failed, we would have failed and, and, and lived and moved on. Um, but it just so happened that, you know, I think given the opportunity and the support that Rodale gave us, at that point, we had apprenticed for two years, and we had managed a farm for four years. So, you know, we we were pretty pretty experienced, and uh, it wasn't wasn't as scary as almost this past year was moving to our own farm. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> even more scary. But maybe I'm I'm older and smarter now, new and know enough to, to be scared. But uh, <laughs> it's, so far, it's all worked out. Yeah, you know, when you when you start pushing forty, those uh, that whole risk thing takes on an entirely different meaning. Yep. Yeah. We have two kids now and, you know, risk has a whole new medium and you have people besides just you who are dependent on, on you and your risks working out. So. Right. When you started the business at Quiet Creek Farm at Rodale, you said that you were confident in your growing, but the challenge was having your own business. What was different for you about having your own business relative to just managing somebody else's operation? The biggest differences were in, in the administrative side. At our previous business, we had a payroll company. We had the, the owners of the business sort of took care of marketing and advertising and the website. We still handled most customer communications there with our CSA members. So that wasn't quite, wasn't really different. And we still did sort of day-to-day banking and bookkeeping, but we had a lot more when we moved to the new property and sort of learning um, you know, legal structures, uh, doing our own payroll, doing liability insurance, all sort of those aspects, kind of the, the unfun parts of farming that we hadn't had to focus on as much. So we had to learn that a lot more on the fly when we ran our own business. Um, I think I was when we first had to run QuickBooks ourselves, you know, and do all our own bookkeeping. So we had those challenges to learn in the background while we were farming. But we, you know, again, we managed to, but those are sort of the things that, you know, that go along with sort of running your own business that, or especially running your own farm business that most of us don't love, but, um, you have to figure out one way or another. Um, you know, print at that time was bro- you know paper brochures, so we we still think about about you know sitting in the in the the floor at night and folding folding trifold <laughs> brochures you know hundreds of brochures, and then you know putting them in envelopes and using a sponge and getting your stamps and envelopes you know uh, all licked with the sponge and 
it was kind of a different time at that time, but you know, it's not that long ago, but it was in the you know, sort of doing all that kind of stuff, which we hadn't had to do when we were managing a farm for someone else. I'm just, I'm just having some flashbacks to, uh, to trifold brochures and, and, uh, and working with yeah. Microsoft publisher and trying to, you know, trying to pretend like we knew what we were doing as graphic designers. Yeah. It's kind of funny. So, so then, I mean, you guys farm at, at Quiet Creek Farm for, if I'm doing the math right, about six years before you decide to buy the land that you're currently on. Yeah, it was probably even a little more than that. It was probably like seven or eight years. I, I can't remember exactly what year we bought the farm, but it was four, maybe four years ago or three years ago. I'm not sure which, but yeah, we were, we had decided, um, we had been at Rhoda, we had done a one-year lease, we had done a five-year lease, and then we did another five-year lease. And sort of in the middle of that, that, that second five-year lease, you know, we were like, uh, we had, a, our daughter was born by that point, and we were just sort of thinking about, you know, do we really, it, it was really getting hard um, kind of psychologically to farm from five-year lease to five-year lease. Even even though we had a good working relationship with Rodale, you know, with any organization, uh, you know, sort of the, maybe leadership changes or maybe their vision would change, you know, we never had super long-term security there and we wanted to have long-term security. And I think everybody who gets into farming, you know, kind of dreams of owning the farm. Um, so at, at that point, we kind of decided to start looking a little bit and we we looked around at farms in our same area that we had lived in. You know, we wanted something that was still hopefully in our same school district, maybe close to our same customer base, and, and most importantly for us, close to our families. We knew it was going to be a kind of a lengthy search, so we started. We probably started looking about five years ago, and then probably bought the land maybe three and a half, four years ago. But again, it was kind of a very calculated decision, a very slow decision. We we looked for land with with um, infrastructure first. And um, really couldn't find anything that we liked. Um, maybe you'd find a decent house and a terrible barn and fields, or you'd find good fields, uh, nice land, but just just terrible dwelling. You know that would basically needed to be raised to be worthwhile. So then, about halfway through our search, I I told my wife Amy that um, you know we just need to look for raw land because that's the only way we're going to get what we wanted. And so then our search shifted and eventually that's what we did. We bought, you know, a piece of completely undeveloped farmland. And, and then again, step by step, we put a driveway on it. We put a septic system on it next. We built a pole barn next. Uh, we built our house last, you know, uh, the way a farmer would do it. You build your barn first and then your house. And, uh, and then the year before we started farming here, we were building a greenhouse in the winter and sort of uh, finalizing all the infrastructure. So it would actually work as a working uh, vegetable farm. So, it's been a, a sort of slow, um, I don't want to say arduous, but maybe a little bit arduous process to get here. But uh, I'd be living here now and had our first season here, and it was a good one. So, so far, so good. And were you able to retain the CSA customers that you already had? Was that something that you were able to take with you? We did quite a bit. Some of our CSA members, our new location was actually closer. We're only really about 15 miles from the Rhoda Institute. So for, for maybe a a third of our members or so, they were excited. They're like, oh, that farm's even closer than where it is now. Um, and another two-thirds or so, we, continue, we we added some delivery sites near our old farm so we could keep those people as members who couldn't make the drive out to our new location. So we had some delivery sites in that area. And some of those we had even started the year, the year before we left Rodale, sort of get back into deliveries again and have a, a sort of customer base built up. And the last thing we did was our... Final couple of years at Rodale, we were at Quiet Creek Farm. I think I mentioned we were around 275 CSA members. 
So when we knew when we moved, we sort of built that number up with the plan that when we moved, we would drop back down to around 200, um, both to sort of accommodate any customer attrition because of moving to a new location and, and having to build up a new customer base, and also to give us a little bit of um, wiggle room with growing on a new piece of land and making sure it was going to produce or yield you know, up to what we were accustomed to. We left a little bit of, of um, extra space in there and sort of filled that up by doing a farmer's market and some wholesale avenues that were a little less, you know, there was a little less pressure on producing like there is with a CSA in those, in those models. But again, the land ended up being really productive, so it wasn't a problem, but we wanted to have that, that wiggle room built in. And with multiple years to get that land ready for vegetable farming, let me ask, what was the land in when you bought it? Was it in conventional corn and beans? It was in conventional crops. Um, in this area, kind of luckily, a lot of it was in conventional alfalfa, which is a popular crop in my immediate vicinity. Um, the rest was grown in, up, up here, it's a kind of a beans, wheat, oats, and potato rotation. Um, there are some guys who do corn, but on this particular farm, and which is kind of common in my area, is uh, farmers sort of use potatoes as a replacement for corn. So we had conventional potatoes here, and uh, and hay was basically what the land was in. Um, when we bought it, we had the farmer who was custom farming it, you know, transition to at least organic management at that point. So at that point, he put it all in organic um, orchard grass and alfalfa. So he hayed it for it was three years before he moved here, two years, and then in the third year that the farmer was here, we hired him to put in cover crops. So the following spring, ground would be ready for uh, vegetable production, or at least we had them put a third of it into cover crops that year. And, and then the following year, we actually were certified organic. Uh, the first crop we ever pulled off this piece of property was able to be certified organic because we managed it organically for those couple seasons before growing vegetables here. And so how many acres are you actually farming in vegetables now? We have about 10 acres in vegetables here. How many acres of tillable ground are you working with to get that 10 acres of vegetables? The whole farm is about 18 acres. Um, then there's about three to four acres of woods. So I'd say it's about 14 acres of ground gives us about 10 acres. It might be probably a little less, maybe like nine, nine and a half acres of, of tillable vegetable ground, you know, not counting uh, grass roadways, um, you know, the pads around the barn and the greenhouses sort of, there's a lot of, a lot of acreage gets eaten up and, sort of roadways and, and uh, you know, being able to move around the farm efficiently. So when you went about developing the infrastructure on the new farm property, what were, what were some of your priorities there based on the experience that you'd had on multiple other operations with a lot of different packing houses and a lot of different greenhouses? What were you guys looking at and saying, this is what we got to get right here? That's a great question. I mean, the, the biggest thing I think right off the bat was the packing house. I've never had a really good, you know, packing setup. And um, so I, I would say the biggest thing, you know, right away was getting a concrete floor in our packing house, building it big enough so we could build coolers that were bigger than we needed. And then our, our CSA pickup room and sort of shop is in the same space too. And we also want to make that big enough so that customers could move around it and feel comfortable, not feel cramped. And luckily, like I'm a claustrophobic person. I don't like people being right on my shoulder. So I try to make everything too big. I think that was a, was a big step was to give ourselves uh, room to move and room to grow. And a huge one, which we had never had before, was 
you know, uh, insulating the concrete pad under our walk-in coolers. And then that way, you know, everything can roll in and out of our, our walk-in coolers on the concrete floor. You know, that's just been life-changing for me. It was something I always knew I needed to do, but never had to set up to do it. So being able to sort of stack everything on rolling pallets and, and move it in and out of the walk-ins efficiently is, is life-changing um, in terms of, you know, body wear and tear and efficiency. So, um, you know, the, the packing house, the concrete floor, sort of designing things so there was a good flow. I, I was thinking about, you know, where we were going to park the harvest truck or the harvest wagon when it came back to the barn and how we could get from there through our wash pack line into the barn efficiently. And these were all things we were never able to design intentionally, really, at the farms we worked at before, or at least not very much. And this time we had the chance to do that, at least as best as our property shape and size would let us. And um, so that was a big thing in terms of making things flow efficiently was the biggest thing in the barn in the pack shed. I'd say it was the, the thing that we were most able to really get right this time and have it work. Greenhouses and high tunnel siting probably aren't as efficient as we'd like them to be, but we, we kind of try to put those things in the corners of the property, you know, where we're, we're not, where we don't have vegetable ground, or at least our, our greenhouse. But even that is at this point really close to the back of our barn, um, where we have access then to storing greenhouse trays and seeds, and again have things sort of close at hand and handy at. At Rodale, to go to the, from the barn to the greenhouse required you getting in a truck and driving there, you know, where now I can walk out the back door of my barn and be at the greenhouse. So that's really handy in terms of the proximity there. And another great thing we did on the barn that I learned on the two previous farms I worked on was just sort of covered bay. The sort of core of our barn is a 30 by 80 shed is the roof of the pole barn. But then on each side of the pole barn, there's a 15 foot uh, uh, roof bay or um, like a shed roof coming off. And that's a 15 foot deep by 80 foot long four bay on the front side of the barn and on the back side of the barn. And those covered spaces, it's just a roof. There's no walls on it. That roof is great on the back side of the barn for storing equipment um, that's out of the rain, and out of the weather and can be kind of messy, but still out of the elements. And that front side structure is great for a uh, wash pack and uh, getting things into the barn and for providing a nice entrance way for our customers when they come to do CSA pickups. So I love those covered floor bays, and I love having a concrete floor into the cooler. And um, you know, that's where we've probably really been able to get things right. And this is our third you know, shot at starting a farm <laughs> from scratch. Well, and of course, different when you say start from scratch. But, you know, at Rodale, you had a building that you were fitting into, which is a lot different than being able to design something from the ground up. It's true. As as hard as it is and daunting as it is to start from the ground up, it really is an opportunity you know, to, to be able to do things finally the way that you actually think they should they should be done. And you're still going to mess things up. You know, you, there's still things you can't foresee that you get there and you're like, oh no, this is not right. But at least you got a lot of things <laughs> hopefully, you know, more suited to your needs. I remember Dan Gunther uh, from Common. Harvest Farm uh, here in Wisconsin told me that when I was having a lot of angst over developing things on my when we started Oxspring Farm, and he said, "You're Chris, you're you're not going to get it all right. At some point, you just got to move ahead and do it." Yeah, it's true. Um, and we live by the slogan here that um, I don't know who coined the term, but it's you know, uh, ideas are a dime a dozen, but give me a deadline, and uh, that's a valuable, <laughs> a valuable <laughs> acting to keep in your pocket when you're farming. How did you guys finance? the new farming operation? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's many layers to it. The biggest one was 
our house. As I mentioned, we had bought a house when we started Quiet Creek Farm. Um, and I renovated that entire house. Like the whole house was basically stripped down to studs and rebuilt. So even though like the sort of uh, real estate crash happened while we were doing that, we still had a fair amount of equity in our house. So that was going to be sort of our, our first big chunk of cash to put into buying a new property and building another house. Um, so we had that to start with. Um, we did have some savings built up from our time at Quiet Creek Farm. You know, we were always putting money away for different different needs in our personal life and our farm life. So we had some some savings built up. And the other thing that we did was we sold memberships in our CSA. I think there were like three or five year memberships to sort of a, a group of about 15 core members where they could pre-purchase a share for three to five years at a set rate. And we raised, I think it was around $15,000 that way. Um, and we used that money to, you know, drill our irrigation wells. We sort of, we, we used that money to do some early infrastructure work right off the bat. Um, so that was great. We sort of did a loan from our members that way. And uh, we and we did that, I think, that was two or three years ago. Most of those memberships are now up. Those people are now back to joining yearly. We did that before we left Quiet Creek. So we were able to get some infrastructure built before we ever moved here. That includes drilling the wells. And I think the driveway we built that way. And um, we had our equity in our house uh, that we had built up. And then the last one was um, an FSA microloan to do some of the final infrastructure improvements. We had we built our pole barn with one loan. We paid that off. And then we get, took out a final loan to sort of put the concrete in our pole barn, um, build two brand new walk-in coolers in our pole barn, and build our greenhouse. So those are sort of the three main ways we financed getting here. Now, we had all our equipment and supplies that we had already accumulated at Quiet Creek Farm that we were able to move here. And the rest, you know, were fairly small, you know, I say fairly small, but they were, they, they were expenses we were able to fit under our budget for the year. It definitely meant we made less, less money than we normally would our first year farming here because we definitely you know, spent a lot more on sort of small infrastructure projects. But those, with sort of those different avenues, um, we were able to, to get here and get started. And I really love what you said about about building the pole barn and then taking out another loan to kind of turn that pole barn into a packing shed because once you build the pole barn now you've got some you've got something that has some equity right you've got you have an asset on the farm already and it seems yeah. to me like it would be easier to get the financing to then come in and pour a slab than to kind of get somebody to understand what's needed all at once to do everything all at once. And, you know, with the farm service agencies, microloans, they're a small loan. So I don't know if we could have got everything in that loan all at once, but, you know, we did one loan uh, to build the barn. I think that was like three years ago. And then we paid it off, you know, ahead of time. And, you know, of course that looks good then to your creditor, like, sure, we'll give you another loan to finish it up. You guys have been reliable. So that yeah, definitely helped, you know, both, both those things, having the building and showing that you were paying your debts to begin with. You know, you said, of course, being a farmer, you, you know, you, put in the driveway and you built the, the, the barn first and, you know, dug the well, but you were leaving behind the house that you had that was five miles from Rodale. And what'd you do about that? Yeah, this, this, this is one of those crazy parts of the story that only a farmer would do. So we, we were selling our house, you know, to, to help build a new brand new house again from the ground up at our new farm. We were going to build a house here. Um, so we were, you know, our bank was willing to give us a loan to build the house, 
but not until we sold our old house. So now we had to figure out, well, if we sell our house, where do we live while we're building the house? Um, so this was challenge, you know, number ever 400 in this whole process. So we, we sold our house. We sold our house um, for sale by owner um, to, to make some extra money that way. Uh, we accomplished that pretty quickly, which was great. But now we had to move out in it was like October. So we were farming at that time. Um, luckily, we had our pole barn built here at the new farm. So that became our storage unit to move all of our, all of our worldly belongings into, as well as our relatives' basements and attics and anywhere else we could fit stuff. And then we moved to my wife's parents' house um, in the town of Emmaus. And she and I lived in the attic for a year. And our kids, our two children lived in a like eight by 10 bedroom in bunk beds. And we lived there for one year um, where we built our house. We started building our house. We broke ground around, around December 15th. We built most of our house over the winter. But then once the farming season came, we were building a house and farming. So I was living in my in-law's attic, driving to the farm, uh, the Quiet Creek Farm at Rodale, and doing my farming job there, you know, whenever I could, and then driving to Germansville and working on building a house uh, here because I was uh, working with a general contractor who was a close personal friend, and um, for the most part, he and I built the house with the assistance of sub subcontractors. So we were, you know, sort of balancing that craziness while still running a farm business, while living in our in-laws' attic. So that was just another crazy year. Um, but I guess, again, like I feel like I keep saying, we, we got through it and uh, moved here in July of uh, two years ago, again, during the farm season. We moved in here during the middle of summer. But, um, you know, we got here. We love being here now. It's so great to finally live where you farm. You know, after leasing land for 11 years and having to commute to water a greenhouse or to roll up sides in the high tunnels umpteen times a day um, to be able to do that stuff on location, you know, um, despite sort of the the craziness we had to go through to get here in the end, we feel it's been worth it. Congratulations. I mean, especially on surviving a year of living with your in-laws. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luckily my in-laws, I still get along with them well. You know, we went through that process okay. Um, it, it was a close space at times, but, uh, you know, we... We were grateful that they gave us that opportunity, and uh, and uh, I think they were grateful to get to live with their grandkids for a year. So there was there was tough things, but there were benefits for all of us. Yeah, and I think good job for all of you there. I mean, that really I think it speaks it speaks well of everybody that was involved to to make that kind of an arrangement work. Definitely. With that, we're going to stop here. Get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with John Good from the Good Farm in Germansville, Pennsylvania. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend utterly on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. It has to produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest possible ingredients I could to make my own potting soil. And later, I focused on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But you know what? I found what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost Company can tell story after story of customers like me 
who switched to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soil. Feed the soil. VermontCompost.com. The podcast is also sponsored by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest and packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from Packhouse to your customer's doorstep. All right, and we're back with John Good from The Good Farm in Germansville, Pennsylvania. John, you said earlier that, that you learned to have a maniacal focus on weed control. Can you tell us about how you're doing weed control there at The Good Farm? Sure. I mean, the, like I said sort of before, we, we built our, our whole farm system around weed control. Um, and the, the sort of the primary parts of that are, one, we grow on a three-row system. Uh, we have five-foot beds, uh, center to center of tire track with three rows on 15-inch centers. And the three rows is not the world's most efficient spacing. We could definitely do four, maybe five rows on that same size bed. But um, three rows is easy to cultivate. Um, it's One, it's easy because you're not trying to watch as much. And two, it's easy because three rows, whether you're cultivating one row, two row, or three rows, your basic setup don't have to change. Like your, your center row never moves. Your outer two rows never move, you know, never change spacing, whether you're doing one, two, or three rows. So that makes it pretty easy to cultivate. Uh, again, I said sort of in terms of watching what you're doing, but also like the tools that are on my belly of my tractor uh, don't have to move much because I use that same system. And I should mention that, you know, sort of the centerpiece of our cultivation system, which is just one tractor because we're only 10 acres, is um, a Kubota uh, 245 offset. That was that first tractor I bought. I bought at an auction, um, I guess, our first year. So that was like 12 years ago. You know, we got it for $7,000 at auction. It had uh, around a little under 1,000 hours on it. it you know, uh, I remember buying it. I was really nervous, and I, I went a little bit over. I think I wanted to spend 6000 at the auction, but the auctioneer got in my face and really pressured me to, to buy it at yeah. 7000 And I'm so glad he did because it's been a great tractor for us. And um, because it's worth more money now than it was when I bought it 10 years ago. Um, but we sort of center our cultivation system on that tractor. You know, we can we put tools on the belly because it's an offset tractor. Most of my tools aren't fancy. Um, I use sweeps a lot on the belly. And the, the sort of sort of fancier thing we've done on the belly of our tractor is we've modified um, Bezzarides rolling cultivators to sort of make our own basket weeders. Um, I've, I've used basket weeders in the past, um, and they're great depending on your soil and soil conditions. We've had trouble, with, especially at Rodale, a lot with crusting after heavy rains, where a basket weeder just really wouldn't do anything but roll on top of the ground. It didn't penetrate well enough for us when we get crust. So we now have gangs of Bezzarides that basically look like basket weeders, you know, in terms of their width. We have 
um, two on the two gangs on the belly of the tractor that go between our middle and outside two rows, and on the outside on the shoulders of the bed is just a single Bezzeridi uh, rolling spider. And those gangs basically in the middle, it's just three Bezzeridis joined together. We just built those with a friend and put a shank on them. Um, they sort of take the place of where a, a wide basket would be on a basket weeder. And they're really good at penetrating the crust, sort of breaking through the ground. They're definitely more aggressive than a basket weeder was, um, but they still don't really throw soil. So I'm able to still cultivate at a high rate of speed through a crop that you can barely see, but really sort of penetrate the ground. We only use those on like really baby crops and greens and roots. And on the back of the tractor, we carry a Williams system, uh, a Williams weeder from Market Farm implement, which the Williams weeder is really just a nice time weeder. Um, and I love a time weeder. It's just such a great tool. And what's nice about the Williams time weeder is that it's very adjustable. You can make times more aggressive or less aggressive, you know, per the individual time. Um, and that can be really useful. I can be more aggressive between the rows and with my in-row times, I can, I can sort of take them back a notch so they're not hitting the plant so hard. Right. And, um, and the other nice thing on the Williams is it has a double toolbar and then you can just throw on whatever you want. We use all kinds of different configurations of sweeps and knives, depending on whether we're doing one, two or three rows. I always call it, I, I compare the Williams weeder to like a Swiss army knife for a cultivating tractor. You know, it's, and like a Swiss army knife, it can kind of do everything. It doesn't do anything really well. You know, like the, the can opener and a Swiss army knife is not as good as a can opener, but it'll open a can for you. And that's kind of how the Williams works. Although the time weeder on it, I think is better than a regular time weeder because of the adjustability in it. But for the most part, it's just kind of a great tool carrier. And I, I can put hilling discs on there, sweeps, um, we cut our plastic with it. We put a coulter in the middle to cut, cut our plastic and then use sweeps to lift it up. So it becomes kind of a, a cheapo plastic mulch lifter. Um, right. So I, I really like that tool. I, it's not great if you're on sloped land, but if you're on nice flat ground, it, it works pretty well for us. Are you using the guidance system on that? We don't use the guidance system. Um, it's just a, just a toe behind cultivator. Um, anything I need to do really close and finicky, I do on the belly. Um, and the, the back of it for me is basically just a time weeder. And, and like I said, if I put, put sweeps or something on it, they're usually in like the larger spaces where they're covering the ground that the belly might be missing. If it's a one row crop or if it's a two row crop, um, they can cover the ground that I'm not going to hit with my belly, but I'm not like right up on the plant with it. And the times, as far as the time weeder are fairly forgiving, whether you're in the row or without the row anyway. But, um, uh, for the most part, it's just a tool carrier for us, and we haven't used the guidance system. I, I've heard people use, um, particularly though they've adapted the, the Reedy's guidance system to that tool and have really good success. I just, I've never quite, quite gone that far with it. And and I do want to back up and just ask a question about the, the Bezzeridis rolling cultivators that you're using underneath. Mm. Are those are those these spider gangs, or I always thought of those as being a Lilliston where you've got it's a wheel, but it's got a whole bunch of tines on it and it's, and it's spinning. And I've always thought of those as being something that really moved the dirt or is it something different than that? It, it basically is that, and they do, you know, they, they move dirt, but only in a function of if you twist them. Um, but if they run kind of straight, they really just sort of um, kind of cut through the crust and pulverize it, but they don't throw dirt unless you sort of angle them. Okay. So they'll kind of aggress they'll aggressively cultivate the area in between the row, but they don't really throw the way I'm set up, throw any dirt to the left or the right. I kind of compare compare them to those um those those kind of gardening tools that your grandmother might have had, those like sort of spiky wheels that you would spin in the bed 
in between the in between her flowers, you know, when you were a kid. I, I kind of right. compare it to that. Like it's like it's it's aggressive, but without really throwing soil. And um, you know, we we had a friend made those up a couple of years ago, and, and they've they've really worked well for us. Um, and I think that crust breaking function can be so important. I mean, if you have if you have any issues with crusting it, it really makes a difference even in the growth of the crops to get in there and break up that crust. But that crust can also provide kind of a home for a small weed to to hold on in the soil if you end up with kind of a a, a you know that if its roots are just in the crust and you know if the situation's right, it can you know you can just not kill them if you're only going through with the sweeps. Yeah, it just gives you one more way to, you know, it, in general with cultivators, none of them by themselves are really that good. It, it's a variety, I think, is important you know, when you're cultivating, using different tools at different times. Because like you said, certain weeds and certain things just have a good, have a knack for swimming through what you're using. And, you know, over time, you probably eventually will select for weeds if you keep using the same tools all the time that, that can survive your tools. And, um, and that's another thing I like about having the Williams weeder on the back is that tine weeder. Is sort of your second your second line of weeding. You know, that I'll drag that through the ground that I'm doing with the belly, um, and like we're maybe maybe using a sweep on the belly is just sort of loosening the weed. That time weeder comes along as kind of like you you know ripping it out by its head and and uh, knocking the dirt off of it. So I think sort of multiple layers of cultivation and 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 using different tools and and your tools are going to change over time because your weed species change over your time. Um, you get better at using them. I, I I don't think I've ever, you know, really. At one point, I think I thought I was going to get a, a set set in stone system, and it would work perfectly, and I'd be able to use that forever and ever. And now I realize that, you know, the worst thing you could ever do is have a set set stone system. It's good to have, you know, you know, a bunch of different tools or a bunch of different ideas at least in your back pocket, and be willing to evolve as, as kind of conditions change. Maybe form a really wet year, a really dry year. Um, and also as weed species change and just the, the million different factors that are always kind of kind of evolving on the farm and the, the different challenges you get presented with. I do think that's one of the great things too about that, that Kubota L245, that the offset tractor is that it, you know, relative to a lot of the other offset tractors out there, it's got, I think it's got two big advantages. One is that it goes it can go really, really slow, you know, and it's hard to slow a 140 or a Super A down enough to do really close cultivation. And then it's got that three-point hitch on the back, which gives you just a whole, an infinite array of tools that you can put back there. You can throw on almost whatever, you know, you can throw a tiller on in a pinch if you need to, you know, or or you can pull a transplanter with a three-point draw bar if you need to. And and we had a 140, or we we actually leased a 140 when we first got the road out. In addition to the Kubota, and and after a year, sort of the challenges of not having the three-point hitch, um, the gas engine, which is giving you trouble all the time. You know, in my perspective, the, the little uh, whatever it is, three-cylinder diesel on the Kubota is just like indomitable, just starts and runs. Um, and the three-point hitch is just you know, so key. But uh, that and the diesel engine are two things I just love about the sort of that that newer generation of cultivating tractors. I mean, I I don't know if there's much difference between that and the 1710 and the 265, and you know then you're just kind of getting into preferences. But um, it's I love that tractor. <laughs> I'll just say that I, I love that little orange tractor. It's gonna, it's like a pet almost at this point. You know, it's a good dog or something like that. 
I ended up with mine when my Kubota dealer actually came and dropped it off one day while I wasn't at the farm and said, here, just, you know, keep this for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a great sales pitch. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was a great investment. And, and I think one of the really interesting things, you know, you talk about learning about business, but you know, we had that same experience where that tractor was worth more when I sold it than it was when I bought it. And so, it, you know, it, it becomes an interesting, um, it becomes an interesting exercise in talking about, you know, depreciation and cost ownership and things like that when you have that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always sort of thought about that. If I ever you know, decide to retire, I'm forced to retire. I can sell my, my equipment and live for a year or two, you know, so that's, you built, you do build up some equity in some of that stuff as time goes on. I mean, it sounds like really for your cultivation, you're relying a lot on, I guess, attitude and approach far more than having, you know, specialized tools. You know, a lot of people now talk about, you know, having the finger weeders and the, you know, all of these other $12,000 implements. How do you make time to cultivate? Because I think that's one of the hardest things on the farm you know, when you're the guy who runs the cultivator, but you've also got to manage the farm operation, how do you balance that out? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it's it's one of those things that if I'm cultivating or an employee is cultivating, you know, because I have apprentices do it as well. Um, but it's sort of when when you're on the cultivator, you're you're kind of free to do whatever you want. You know, that that you go get that job done because whatever you're doing is going to save everybody else hours of time and struggle later if you get your job done well in a timely manner. So, you know, if if it's been rainy for a while and we haven't had a window to sort of keep up on cultivating piecemeal, um, either maybe I'll go out or somebody else will just go out first thing in the morning and just go all day and maybe the next day too. But just to make sure that, um, you know, every week to 10 days, I like to cultivate everything on the farm. Um, and that's just sort of something we've built into the system because, it sort of saves you the time that you spend on it, you know, and kind of a chicken and egg sort of cycle. If, if you can spend the time cultivating things when you really need to do it, you won't have a crew out there hand weeding it or trying to hoe it, or maybe they will be, but it'll be, it'll, it'll take them half as long because you cultivated at the right time. I know this fall, we had a day where I went out with the crew to cultivate some fall greens, you know, in, in early September or something like that. And, I had them all pulling row covers off so I could go through and um, and tine weed really, you know, baby greens. And it was kind of the end of the day. We were all tired. And nobody really wanted to do it. But when we got done with it, I was like, you know, it only took us maybe 45 minutes or an hour to get through these beds we needed to get done. And even the crew helped move the covers at the end. We're like, so, I'm so glad we did that. You know, that you could just see the conditions were perfect. Um, we had basically hand weeded the crops with the pine weeder that day. We, they were going to require minimal investment from us from now till the end of the season. So um, even though it can be hard to get it in, I, I, you just have to. And um, and one more, and speaking about uh, finger weeders too, you know, I think I've, I've seen them a lot and I'm you know, definitely interested, but like you said, I, I just don't really see the need. I've always felt that a pine weeder does really pretty good in-row weed control for me if I use it at the right time. And um, it doesn't require a lot of, you know, extra cash and a lot of tinkering to get set up just so right. So uh, up till now, anyway, I haven't really seen the need to, to go that route um, so that I get good control with a time weeder in the row. And I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, the CSA, 
you've really talked about as being the the cornerstone of your operation about you know roughly when you look at how your market breaks out now how much is in CSA and how much in farmers market and wholesale CSA is probably i mean for many years it was really like 100% almost and even now it's still probably 85 to 90 um we still do primarily CSA um and uh you know that's the type of growing we you know, learn to do. We learned at the food bank farm, like I said, which was just solely a CSA and caretaker farm, which were solely CSAs. There wasn't so much the, you know, the idea at that time, you know, in the beginning of CSA was that this was your marketing avenue to to best support you while doing your job. And we weren't trying to do um, so many other things as well. And we kind of stuck to that. Um, I guess we're kind of, you know, an anomaly now um and and we may have to change as the future goes as maybe as if you know it seems like maybe right now the popularity of csa has been kind of waning but we, we're still doing all right that way and um it's still you know most of our market for, for our produce and it's what we like to do we like getting our produce to people um now i'm more of a grower but my my wife really likes not that she's not a you know good great farmer in her own right but she really likes the the community aspect and getting to know the people that we're producing for it, it gives her and me too, a, you know, a, maybe a kind of a higher degree of satisfaction in, you know, seeing the families that eat our food and, and um, sometimes those great emails and feedback you get back from CSA customers. Um, and occasionally you get the bad one too, but you know, 10 or 20 to one, it's people who just say, you know, I've been brought to tears by the nice things CSA members have said to me you know, more times than I've been angry of somebody complaining about something. So in that respect, that sort of uh, reinforcement of our of your work when you get it here and there is really one of the reasons we like still doing CSA growing. And how do you do your CSA distribution? We do our CSA primarily market-style farm pickup. Um, when we were at Quiet Creek Farm at Rodale, when we were really close to our market, had been there for a really long time, we did you know, 270 members on farm, all on farm with no delivery. Um, since we moved, we're in a more rural location. So now, right this past year anyway, we did about 100 CSA shares on farm and 100 at uh, delivery sites. Um, just two sizes, a small, or we call it a small and a regular share. Um, on farm, we really like, um, it, when it gets the customers to the farm, so they get to see you and see what you're doing. Um, it makes adding choice to the share really easy on farm. Because you can do that just sort of by table, by crop grouping. Uh, we, you know, we often have mix and match tables at the farm where members can pick whatever they want out of this table up to a set amount. Um, so that gives members a lot more choice and freedom in their share um, without us having to sort of pack it or you know have a software system that does it for them. And the other big thing we really like about on-farm pickup is we've always done, you know, a pretty large U-pick garden, um, uh, about an acre, three quarters of an acre. And we can do, you know, a lot of crops that I wouldn't be able to pick weekly for deliveries. Our members can pick weekly for themselves. And um, we do, you know, a little bit of annual herbs, a pretty good amount of cut flowers. Um, all our cherry tomatoes are in that U-pick garden. We have beans there. Um, our strawberries are in the UPIC. Um, and so sort of all those uh, hot peppers are in there. Sort of all these sort of kind of, you know, difficult to pick, really time-consuming crops for box shares or from market. Our CSA customers pick themselves 
and they love that experience. Um, and we love the experience of not having to do it for them. Um, and it's like another one of those kind of mutually beneficial or synergistic activities where it's good for us and good for them. And, and I feel like I don't even really charge my CSA members to come to the farm for the UPIN. Um, Cause we probably, if we were charging them for it, our share would be significantly more expensive, but it contributes so much to member happiness and uh, member retention that um, we'll kind of always keep it as part, at least of our, of our farm pickup. Well, and I think it's, it's one of those funny things too, where even if people don't take the time to go out and pick the beans, it's that you've created the potential. There's a perceived value in the opportunity to go out and pick the beans. Definitely. Even if it's just taking a walk, you know, through the rows or, or around the UPIC and taking pictures of the butterflies and flowers, that, that gives people that farm experience, you know, that, that, that tangible uh, experience that, that I think a lot of people are really looking for. We haven't talked a lot about your wife, Amy, and her role on the farm. And I want to make sure that we, that we at least create an opportunity to, to give a shout out. It, I mean, definitely, you know, Amy is my, Amy's the heart and soul of our farm, I would describe her as, and, you know, the backbone of the farm community, I would think of her. You know, she's a, she's a, a very uh, loving, laughing person. People love to be around her. Um, and she's a great worker. You know, I, I kind of didn't get the chance to work with Amy a whole lot for maybe the last six or eight years when our kids were babies, you know, she really, she really took on raising them and I really took on doing the farm work. And um, yeah, I had to learn to be, to be a manager actually when we had our first child, because we realized that, Oh, Amy, you had been the manager and I was the field worker, you know? And uh, so I had to learn how to manage people because she was really, she was always really good at that. Um, and I sort of learned that while she was away, um, you know, doing more of just the administrative work, which she did for several years while our kids were young. But now that they're getting older and off to school, you know, Amy is back in the fields again, uh, working for us a lot. You know, this was our first summer really back on tractors again on a, on a big scale. And um, and she's she's a great worker and, a, and just a great person. Like she is our, our, our farm ambassador. You know, we get her in the share room when people are coming to pick up their, their produce because uh, Amy is just always laughing, always talking with people. They really get, they really like uh getting a chance to see her and talk with her. And I'm more quiet and reticent. So I prefer being in the background out in the field. Um, I did that role a little bit while she was uh, raising her kids, but I'm glad to, to get more in the background. And um, the other thing that Amy brings to the farm that has always been sort of her specialty is that she's you know, a phenomenal cook. Like she could be you know, a chef at a, at a fancy restaurant. You know, she's always been a really good cook and always really resourceful. She really knows how to use farm produce. And so she's been great throughout the years in sort of managing our, our member communication and then providing, you know, recipes and cooking and storage tips to members um, that are really tasty, but she's also a farmer. So they're, they're doable. You know, they're not these uh, sort of, you know, ridiculous, you know, ensemble pieces of, of meals that she's creating. They're, they're quick, dirty, delicious, farm meals and um, she's great on getting that information out to the members you know, on a weekly basis throughout the season she does our farm uh, our weekly farm member update you know telling you what's going to be available this week roughly what amount here's one or two recipes and here's how to store and use what's in the crop and in addition she usually tells like a brief farm story it can be anything from um, this summer we were finding baby tree frogs all over the farm to you know what the heck are row covers for covers that kind of stuff on a weekly basis 
and um, you know members love that information and it's you know great to have somebody who can communicate it to them who really knows how it's done. One more thing that I want to touch on before we turn to the lightning round is that you're on the board of directors at the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, PASA. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the work that you're doing with them and the work that PASA does? Sure. I just uh, joined PASA's board a little over a year ago. Um, that was my first experience working on PASA, which is the Pennsylvania Association of Sustainable Agriculture. And, you know, PASA has been, um, I think, sort of one of these, you know, great symbols of the sustainable agriculture movement in the country, really, since its inception. Um, my wife and I went to our first PASA conference, um, I think it was in 2001, um, when we were at Caretaker Farm, actually, when we were interviewing there, uh, Elizabeth Smith, who her, her and her husband, Sam, originally ran Caretaker Farm, they told us about this PASA conference down in Pennsylvania, and they said, oh, you've got to go, go down there. Everybody says it's the greatest. We had never heard of it before because we were from Pennsylvania, but had been farming in Massachusetts. So that winter when we were uh, back home in Pennsylvania, we went to the PASA conference in State College, Pennsylvania. And, you know, for listeners who haven't been to a PASA conference, it's like this amazing event. You know, there's 2,000, you know, sustainable or organic growers there of all shapes and sizes, food activists. And, um, and it's just this really sort of rallying point for the sustainable agriculture community. You know, you just feel sort of this palpable energy of the these people who are working tirelessly to change our food system to make it more, you know, economically just and environmentally sustainable. And uh, so we fell in love with pasta. It was actually going to that first conference when we thought, you know, we're going to move back to Pennsylvania, the farm, because look at this, you know, community and this institution that's there. And, uh, you know, so I can kind of credit the conference for us making it back to Pennsylvania to live in farm because we probably would have ended up in New England. Um, you know, Western Massachusetts was this Shangri-La of organic farming at the time too. But um, when we saw PASA for the first time, we knew we wanted to come back home. And we've been members ever since then, you know, for 15 years or so. Um, and I was approached once to serve on the board of directors when we were at Quiet Creek Farm. And I think it was the winter our first child was going to be born. <laughs> so I I turned down the opportunity um, at that time, knowing I'd just be too busy. Um, but I was approached about running again a few years ago, and I thought, you know, I've always respected this organization, and they've they've offered us, you know, so much in terms of community and information and inspiration over the years that um, I thought, well, now's a chance to. I thought I was like, I could always find an excuse not to do it, but I thought I had to, you know, was maybe in a place now where I could. Um, offer something back to the community and to the organization a little bit. So, um, you know, decided to, to join the board and, and um, you know, and I'm working in that work now, trying to help uh, ASA continue to grow and change. You know, it's a, it's a new era, I think, kind of, in sustainable agriculture and organic agriculture in general. And we're trying to, trying to see where we're going to go next and, and uh, how to best accomplish that. So we have this great board of directors at PASA. I mean, there's you know, so many great growers and activists on that board. I went to the first meeting and I sat down and I thought, boy, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a member of this group of people. And um, and also excited for, you know, hopefully what we can still accomplish out there. You know, I think this sustainable food, food movement driven by PASA and organizations like it and the farmers has accomplished so much. And uh, we've kind of got to this sort of, you know, I think it was kind of like a, almost like a bubble, you know, over the last 15 years or so that is, you know, kind of, uh, slowing down right now, and um, I think it's to this 
to the point where we have to, you know, get to the next level and really push this movement, um, you know, hopefully more and more beyond the, the kind of the, the fringe of society and get people really invested in, you know, eating good food and, um, and hopefully learning about soil, you know, I think is something we're kind of excited about, you know, getting the, the idea of soil health into the public discourse, I think is something for maybe our, our next 20 years to, or so to, to work on here and for PASA and, and like-minded organizations. I'd probably be remiss here, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm, I asked that question just to have the opportunity to talk myself up, but I am going to be uh, doing one of the keynote speeches <laughs> yeah, at the conference this year. So I'm really excited that I, I get the opportunity to come back to PASA. Last time I was there, I, I really did have a great time, and I'm really looking forward to being there again. Yeah, it's, it's just an, uh, uh, an event you go to and just feel good when you leave, you know, and you're it, and it's right in the beginning of February and you're like, go home and start eating onions. So you're always, it gives you that little bit of juice to get the season going. It, it's always sort of a great thing to, to have at that time of year. With that, John, we're going to turn to our lightning round. But first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. John, what's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool on the farm um, is kind of a funny one, I think, from a vegetable grower's perspective, but I love my grain drill. I have a little... Massey Ferguson uh, 33 rope lift grain drill that I bought about five years ago for planting cover crops. Um, it's like eight or eight or ten feet wide. Um, it's a real simple old machine. I bought it for like $700, and it's one of those machines that I went out and planted like, you know, in half an hour or whatever. I went out the first time and planted an acre of cover crop, and I said to myself, it paid for itself already. And um, I, I still I still love using it. It's just a fun machine to run because it's really simple, but really well engineered. Um, like I said, I don't even have the hydraulic. I don't even have a hydraulic cylinder on. I still use the old rope lift, and it works so well. Like you plant a cover crop, and it looks like basically every seed comes up. You know, you get like 100% germination, at least to my eye. And it turned what can be was like an arduous job with like a spinner seeder and a disc into something where I can go out and seed you know several acres in a couple hours. And uh, and it doesn't matter if it rains or not; they're all going to germinate a couple of days later. Um, so it's so satisfied. I love that little grain drill. It's a it's a great investment, and it's and it's fun to go out and run it. And what's your favorite crop to grow? My favorite crop to grow, um, I think, would probably be high tunnel tomatoes. Um, we do grassed tomatoes in the tunnel. Um, they're just a lot of fun. They kind of get let you to be a little bit more of um, like a geeky, that geeky plant grower, 
a little more hands-on with the pruning and everything. But then they're also, they grow like magically, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk plants. They get so huge. Um, they, they develop this perfect, delicious fruit that's easy to pick. Um, which is great compared to field tomatoes, which you're, you're, you're humping down the row with your back bent over and struggling where the high tunnel is just sort of like, you know, you walk down and they're just hanging there for you, all these beautiful fruits. So that's probably my favorite one to grow. Um, eating wise, I love muskmelons. Like that's my, I call them Pennsylvania mangoes here. <laughs> um, I love muskmelons in terms of eating them, but they're maybe not as easy to grow as pick, but those, those are two of my, my most favorite crops. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, but I think the biggest thing would be, it's hard to say it in one word, but would be to maybe not take yourself so seriously and not get so worked up when things go wrong. Um, I learned since then, I, I think I mentioned it maybe before that I, I always thought I'd develop this beautiful system, you know, where everything would work perfectly and, and, uh, I'd have a, you know, be able to do things the same way all the time and just move them around and it would work so great. And, um, one, I realized that, that, you know, or I realized more and more that natural systems don't like human imposed systems imposed on them that much. <laughs> they're always going to, they're always going to find a way to, to mess it up a little bit for you. And weather and the elements and diseases are always going to change what you do. And, um, I mean, I've learned a lot from that. In, in retrospect, it's sort of the disasters that I've, that I've learned from. And now I, I'm big on the, the slogan on our farm is that obstacles are stepping stones, you know. But when I was young and maybe more hot-headed, an obstacle was an obstacle. And I was going to get mad about it and, uh, you know, be really frustrated. Where now, it's, you know, I realize that an obstacle isn't, isn't personal. It's, it's just something that happens. And it's an you know, hopefully an opportunity to get better. And, and, and in the long run, you know, looking back on it, it is true. All those those things that have gone wrong in the long run have been where we got better. And so now after maybe that maybe initial shock of a maybe a disaster or something going wrong, um, I get over it more quickly and realize that, okay, well, what am I going to do to maybe get better so the next time this happens, I can handle it better or it doesn't, it doesn't even happen again. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the one thing I didn't have when I was young was, the longer view and, um, you know, sort of, uh, learning from, learning from the disasters. That's pretty much what farming is. I realized. John, thank you so much for being part of the farmer to farmer podcast today. Yeah, thanks. It was, it was always kind of fun to get to talk to somebody and hopefully more people who actually understand this weird world that, uh, we operate in. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 150 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for good. That's easy, right? G-O-O-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SAIR, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. Now you can get the notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, 
please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.